people who call themselves a Catholic or Greek Orthodox will never pick up a book like this. He touched on something that is universal, that anybody from any religion can appreciate, and that is the this dual nature of Christ. My principal anguish and the source of all of my joys and sorrows from my youth onward has been the incessant, merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh. Welcome to Band Book Club. We're your hosts, Rafaela and Nick. So that was a quote from The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Katsanzakis. Every book we do here is banned and usually controversial, but it's rare that we get one that's this controversial, especially with the, I'd say, the religious world of the West. Yes, you may have heard of this book through the movie being very famous and also equally as controversial when it came out in the 80s. The Scorsese movie? By Martin Scorsese. Um, but we'll we'll definitely give you our thoughts on both the book, of course, and the movie. But just to give you a little background on what this book is about, if you can't tell by <laughs> the name of it, um, it is depicting the life of Jesus, and it goes through, um, you know, his whole battle between being tempted by the devil, following his disciples, um, you know, going through the church, all of that. And it is fictional. It is Kazadzaki's depiction of all of this so things that happen in this book don't necessarily happen in the bible it's well yes and no i mean it covers the basic stories of jesus and the gospels all the famous scenes like the sermon on the mount or his time in the desert Mm -hmm. or his actual crucifixion and the characters he meets leading up to that, all that is in the Bible itself. But what what makes this book unique is that Katsanzakis gives those stories a, a literary treatment mm-hmm. and develops all these characters and fashions these dramatic scenes um, that move these kind of archetypal stories of Jesus that we already know along. So it's... I mean, if you're accepting, if you're saying the Bible's true from the beginning, then it is true in that way. But it's just given a a lot a, more a storytelling, yeah, more context, more background, um, almost like a play. I mean, that's how these scenes move along. But that that's not what makes it controversial. Is you know what what he did with the the ins and outs of those stories. It's it's really the amount of humanity that uh, Katsanzakis gives to the character of Christ in this book. And for a lot of the religious community out there, it was just too human of a Christ. Exactly. So um, that's the controversy here. You know, you may have heard of this book for a scene that, you know, is brought up in the movie as well. And just to give you a little bit here, um, you know, Jesus will you know, he'll be tempted by love and, and lust, and he, you know, does fall in love with Mary Magdalene, who is briefly brought up in the Bible, but, you know, there there is a scene in there where they do kiss and come together, and some people will think that is just absolutely blasphemous and horrible and that Jesus never did give in to any kind of temptation, but that is what the book is about, is how he didn't. So there is a scene in the book where uh, Jesus and Magdalene kiss and get married and do all the things a normal married couple would do, have children. Um, so that it does happen, but it's within the context of a fantasy that Christ is having in a, a split-second moment mm-hmm. while he's on the cross. So specifically, it's the moment where... He, in the Bible, he famously cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the moment right after that where the controversial stuff with Magdalene happens takes up about 
60 or so pages at the end of the book. And that that fantasy, him living out um, what it would be like to marry Magdalene, marry Mary Magdalene, <laughs> have children, be a normal guy, that fantasy itself is the last temptation that he has. So it doesn't it's an important distinction because he doesn't actually do any of this stuff. And I think that's what I just wanted to bring that up before we get into all this because I think there are a lot of people that, you know, are Christian that will never read a book like this because of those controversies and you are missing out because that is not the point of that book. This book, this book is very special and I have read that people that are atheist, agnostic, Buddhist even, you know, they will read this book and really f- fall in love with this story. Um, and a, it's just told in such a different light. So just to give you some background, of course, why it's banned. It was condemned by the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's been obviously challenged by a lot of Christian groups and right-wing organizations. Um, actually, when the movie came out, Someone had planted a bomb in a Paris theater and injured about 20 people um, because they were trying to destroy this screening. Scorsese had to have bodyguards for about the first couple of years after this movie came out um, because people were just attacking him for making this movie. Um, Greek Orthodox Church officials actually deny Nikos Katsadzakis in general. They're, they say how unfortunate it is that he is Greek and from Greece. Um, you know. I think when he was dying at the end of his life from um, some adverse reaction to a, a vaccine or something that he got, they were trying to bring his body back to Greece for the burial. And there was a big effort from <clears throat> the religious officials over there to keep him from even being buried. Yeah, like exactly. So he was not buried in a cemetery. So he is buried on a hill um, in near near Crete he's he's in Crete uh it looks out in Heracleion and his epitaph says i hope for nothing i fear nothing i am free um so this book was written in 1955 in the original greek and then it was translated in 1960 and uh, we mentioned this briefly, but it lost the Nobel Prize by one vote uh, to The Stranger by Camus in 1957. And actually, it was nominated many times, and he had never won. Camus also commented on that and said that Katsunzakis deserved it 100 times more than him. And then Camus, the, the saddest part of all is he rejected the, <laughs> the Nobel Prize. Really, so like, you could just have just it given to it to Katsunzakis. So something special about the way this book is written is it's not written in a normal Greek. It is written in this thing called Demotic Greek, and it's a pure form of the Greek language which bridges the ancient Greek with the modern. So this some some critics will say that this book was very flowery, a little bit too obscure with its metaphors, and very difficult to read. But pretty much all of his books were written in this sort of Greek. Um, and the way this is translated, which we're, we read the P.A. Bean version of this book, it is translated beautifully. I mean, I think this guy did the best he could. And I think it's so hard to read a book that's coming from a different language that you're worried if it's translated right. Not to worry. This one is a great version. Yeah, translation or doing it well at least is almost as hard as creating the book in the first place. But you're basically writing this story all over again <laughs> but and having that experience. I think before we go on into the, I don't know, philosophical meat of this stuff, it's it's worth talking really quickly about just the style of the writing in this book because, I mean, you don't get no- nominated for a Nobel Prize without being a little bit good with words. And I, I think just the sheer controversy of this story can kind of overshadow mm-hmm. how beautifully this is actually crafted on the line level. So... I don't know about you, but stylistically, this thing really stood out to me, even from books in the 50s when um, that uh, short line, uh, Western line started to really take and even foreign authors like Camus were adopting that. But this is a total refusal of all that. It's, like you said, very flowery, um, 
embellished, dramatic, um, even things just regular villagers will say in this book sound like a poetic bard、mm-hmm. is saying them, and that's、uh, in the afterword to this book, which is really good, where he's talking about the Demotic Greek.、Uh, he says that comes from a way of speaking that Greek villagers have kind of developed, where there's a ton of leaning on metaphor and imagistic language. <clears throat> Which ended up working perfectly for this, and to me, it had almost the feel of Shakespeare. Yeah,、um, this it, could like, be a play. Yeah, but just the lines themselves—they they don't care as much about capturing the hard reality of what's going on as much as painting a picture of what's going on emotionally with the characters and. I, it just had that that play like feeling when you're watching Shakespeare or Titus or Hamlet, but you know that's actually a good segue because Christ in this book reminded me so much of Hamlet. I mean, are you are you familiar with yeah with his basic problem? Yeah. yeah. So Hamlet is a guy who has a lot going for him, who is destined to be a great man. But he sees so much more than everybody else that he ends up being paralyzed by that, and he has this indecision and this internal conflict between this world and that world, and the the whole play is about that tension playing out, and that's pretty much what this story was too. It was、um, not the Christ that you grow up with in church, where he's just this sage. From the beginning, he knows the right answer to everything. He's just—it's like he's already just a hundred percent God. Yeah, he is always Christ in the Bible, and that's that's why a book like this, you know, I mean, personally, it touched my heart. And I think if someone, you know, is opposed to reading the Bible or opposed to Christianity because of that coldness that sometimes can come with the Bible, where you know Jesus is not very human. In the Bible, even though we are always told, and you are told that Jesus is both human in every sense of the word and spiritual, and and the the Savior, this book, God's Ezekiel, just somehow captured that human feeling so well that I felt like I was experiencing a completely different Jesus in this, and I think that's what. Bothers a lot of people, but has has also opened up people to following a story like this better than reading him in the Bible. I read、uh, one literary critic talking about Katsunzaki's, and、uh, he was mentioning what made him different from other artists that have tried to represent Christ, and he he said that Katsunzaki's was the first artist. Who focused on the what he called the mutability of God rather than his immutability? And in case you don't know that word, I didn't. It, I think it basically means the, a capacity to be able to change. So, in every other depiction of God and Christ, you see, like I was mentioning before, just this like a sage from the beginning, totally incorruptible, all powerful. Um, never questioning, never changing, and because of that, I mean, you, you read these stories from the Bible and they're still beautiful. But because he's depicted so immutably, you almost feel like there's no stakes, no、yeah. humanity,、um, and it's it gets hard to relate to. At least it did for me、um, while I was growing up in the church. But、um, one more thing. While we're on this subject, you mentioned that atheists, a lot of atheists, I read among Goodreads too, really relate to this book and like it. And I think it's because、um, because of that move Katsunzaki's decided to make, where he focuses on maybe the a god that's a little bit more subject to change, let's say in a way,、mm-hmm. uh, because he focused on that instead in this book. He touched on something that. Is universal that anybody from any religion can appreciate, and that is the this 
dual nature of Christ that you also see in in, in humans, man. Yeah, that, <laughs> that we all have. That's that exactly that well it's two things. It's dual. It's an awareness <laughs> that you could be more, that there is more, that there is a a divine out there, that there is a a spiritual world existing alongside this material world. And the the pull towards that and at the same time being pulled towards the material and the practical and you know the simple and what you can see and touch and that's what makes this book elevated and something that anyone i think can relate to no matter where you're coming from i want to unpack all of this book you know and and talk about the dual nature but just so i can bring this up to anybody watching and listening here you know it opens up with a prologue by Kazazaki's kind of setting up his reason for writing something like this which covers pretty much what you said and i don't know that's also something rare you get in a prologue is uh the this is the best prologue i've ever read from a yes. book yes so and it was also key for understanding the rest you have to read i know yeah. usually you skip a prologue you're like okay i'm just going to get into the book you have to read this prologue for everything to make sense but i'm going to read just some parts of this it says the dual substance of Christ, the yearning, so human, so superhuman, of man to attain to God, or more exactly to return to God and identify himself with him, has always been a deep, inscrutable mystery to me. This nostalgia for God, at once so mysterious and so real, has opened in me large wounds and also large flowing springs." And this is the quote we opened up with. My principal anguish and the source of all my joys and sorrows from my youth onward has been the incessant, merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh. Every man partakes of the divine nature in both his spirit and his flesh. That is why the mystery of Christ is not simply a mystery for a particular creed. It is universal. The struggle between God and man breaks out in everyone, together with a longing for reconciliation. Most often, this struggle is unconscious and short-lived. A weak soul does not have the endurance to resist the flesh for very long. It grows heavy, becomes flesh itself, and the contest ends. But among responsible men, men who keep their eyes riveted day and night upon the, upon the supreme duty, the conflict between flesh and spirit breaks out mercilessly and may last until death. But this opening, I mean, just tells you exactly that battle Kazatzakis was having trying to go back to Christianity because he gave up being Greek Orthodox and he became Buddhist at one point and then found himself towards the end of his life writing a book like this and, you know, being Greek Orthodox again. But, of course, he got denied. Um, but anyways, this book, like we said, deals with Jesus being very human and being tempted, but not giving in. And I think that's another thing. Like we were watching, there's a horrible video on YouTube of um, this book being brought up or the movie being brought up on, on Oprah. Oprah. And it was crazy. So many people were arguing back and forth about this book and they had never even either seen the movie or read the book. And All you need is just to hear, oh, Jesus was with a naked woman in a scene. That, yeah. That's all it takes because you, people's idea of Christ is like this. It's like the one thing you can't touch. It has mm -hmm. to be perfect and holy and, um, you know, he would never do anything like that. So it's, it, you've got to respect how brave of a project this book is just that you would go right into the face of that. What people don't understand is the point of Jesus was not just to die on the cross and be um, tortured to death and all of the slashes and the crown of thorns and all that. The whole point of him sacrificing and giving up all of these temptations, giving up having a family, being just a regular guy you know, experiencing what every human wants to experience, just giving all of that up was the point of us being saved. And it wouldn't have mattered if he hadn't have actually wanted those things yeah. like a normal human. 
if he had given in, then he would have just and and still preached and still believed in God, then he would just be like a philosopher. Or if he had given up everything and I guess uh you know, didn't give in to the temptations, but then didn't die on the cross, then nobody would have remembered him. He would have just been another guy preaching in the streets. Which so is how the all of these things of, had to happen. Of the the actual temptation he has at the end of the book, that's how it wraps up is he's being visited by the apostles and his followers and he um they're basically letting him know that he's gonna be forgotten. Uh, they mm-hmm. ruined he ruined their lives and his life was pretty much inconsequential. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Before we continue, a quick interruption. Want to purchase the book we're discussing in this episode? Well, check out Bookshop. Bookshop is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. As more and more people buy their books online, Bookshop has created an easy, convenient way for you to get your books and support bookstores at the same time. Bookshop will give away over 75% of their profit margin to stores, publications, and authors. If you want to shop the books we've covered on the podcast, visit the link down below in the description. We do receive a small commission based on sales, so thank you for all your support of our channel and podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's that's people's problem with this book is well, one you haven't even read it and experienced it for yourself, but also there's so much with what happens and the, these temptations and these conversations Jesus has with a lot of characters in here, which you know you get so many conversations between him and Mary Magdalene, his mother, uh, John the Baptist, and most importantly Judas. Judas is painted in such a different light that he almost became the hero of this story, which is shocking to say, because when you open up the Bible, I mean, Jesus in the Bible literally says Judas should have never been born. He's a betrayer. He is uh, possessed by Satan himself. Whereas in the book... We remember what happened to him in Dante at the end. In Dante's Inferno, yes, he is uh, notoriously in the mouth of Satan being chewed for eternity. Um, And even in the Bible, it basically says Judas went to hell. But Judas in this novel and the movie is Jesus's best friend and most close and loyal disciple. He's also, I mean, if we're just going by the narrative of this book, he is pretty much the reason that Jesus did not end up choosing that normal life and ended up mounting the cross and becoming who he was Mm -hmm. and resurrected. So he's, if you read it that way, Judas is actually kind of the hero of this novel, like you said. And that was another very ballsy move of the author. (laughs) And, um, just his character by himself was so good, I thought. I yeah, mean, I, take it away. I mean, he, this was one of my favorite interactions <clears throat> in any novel. Well, all of the characters, the supporting characters, I've got to say in this thing, I think these are the best supporting characters of any book I've ever read. Um, mainly because they don't just have interesting personalities and interesting tensions and goals on their own that are working themselves out, but they, they each of them informs the main character, first of all, Christ, so well. And they these characters change each other when they interact with them, and they bring out different sides in one another, mm-hmm. um, like Judas and Christ, for example, uh, Jesus brings out the sweetness from Judas, who's basically a a murdering freedom fighter at the beginning of the book, and vice versa. um, Judas brings out the what what they call the fire or the axe, or just the um, that fighting side Mm -hmm. spiritually chaos. Yeah, that Jesus ends up wrestling with in the book, and then um, putting to work for. Himself, Jesus's whole message is really about love, and that's all he wants to do is show people how to love, to love others. And Judas kind of fights him on it, saying, "You can't just love; you gotta 
pick up the axe. You know, he wants to just fight anybody who won't believe in 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 him. And so, of course, like you said, he does bring out that softer side. Um, and also, we we've got to say um, every other Judas I've seen in a movie or a book is always this like sniveling, um, evil, weak little guy, and he's like. I don't know. How would you describe him in this? He's like a big, strong yeah. uh, fighter. Like people are and he afraid has bright of him. Red and, hair. <laughs> yeah, he has red hair for some reason. He's almost like a really tough dwarf or something from <laughs> one of the Hobbit movies. He's Gimli. <laughs> yeah, he. I thought he was cool in this, honestly, yeah. and um, which I, is so controversial to say. Yeah. Well. Gosh, I feel like I, I say all these things and they seem normal to me, but I realize how controversial they would sound just to a, a regular fundamentalist Christian. Well, here's, but. here's the um, a beautiful scene that happens is, you know, as Judas is following Jesus and understanding his message, he keeps explaining to Jesus, like, your other disciples don't care as much as I care. And he really loves Jesus. And he, Jesus starts to explain to him that he's starting to realize that he is the Messiah um, and that he can't get out of it. But it, we should also say Judas is only, he's kind of using Jesus at the beginning because mm-hmm. he thinks he's the Messiah that will deliver um, Jerusalem from the Romans. And he makes it clear that that's all I want. I don't care about love or my soul being saved. I just want you yeah. because I think you could help me with this. And but that, he's definitely pulled in yeah. and and really starts to follow Christ. And Christ explains to him that, you have to betray me. This is the only way it's going to work. And Judas is really upset about all this because he's like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to betray my master? And he asked Jesus, would you do that? Would you betray your master? And he says, no. Um, he That's thinks why about I have it for the a long easier time, task of being said, crucified. Yeah, it's easier to be crucified. An, again, another, it was a brilliant scene there. It, it reversed the whole story for me, at least for how it's been shown as I've been growing up, it it was always Judas was weak and uh, he, he just because he sucked and he was evil, he betrayed Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's why everything, all the bad stuff happened. But the book getting up to that part actually made you feel like, no, this is something, it's like a favor he has to do for him almost. Like it's tough. Yeah. Like the betrayal is not something he wanted to do at all or calculated. It was. It makes it so much more essential and special in a way that it because of Judas, we wouldn't have. If we didn't have Judas, we wouldn't have Jesus being crucified. Yeah, and then you get into a lot of interesting theology questions there. Like, did he have the choice from the beginning? Like, mm-hmm. was. Did it always need to be that way? But I don't know that because of the way he was done and because of how he develops Jesus in this book to get to the point where he finally accepts uh, both his natures and gives Mm -hmm. up being a man and is able to ascend. um, Because Katsunzaki's made him that way, I thought that Judas was actually a redeeming character in this book. Before we continue, just a quick interruption. Are you enjoying this episode? If you are, go ahead and like and subscribe. If you have anything to add to the discussion, go ahead and comment down below. Now back to the episode. What did you think of Mary Magdalene? Oh, man. Um... She really represents the love in Christ. Um, And of course he never gives in to the temptation but it is there because they it pictures Mary Magdalene and Jesus actually growing up as children together which is pretty likely that that could have happened you're in a small village probably everybody knew each other so it's not so far fetched to say that there is a chance that Mary Magdalene and Jesus knew each other uh before then of course she's in in here she's a prostitute which is interesting because you know, there's actually nothing in the Bible about Mary Magdalene actually being a prostitute. They just say that because there are there is a verse in the Bible that explains a woman who is possessed by seven 
demons, and she's about to be stoned to death, and Jesus saves her by saying, basically, he draws a line and says, if you have never committed a sin, um, then throw the stone. (laughs) Yeah, the Bible does not say much about her at all, but you also got to think about the fact that he met hundreds and maybe thousands of women. And the fact that her name is even included in the Bible in the first place has got to mean something significant. She's there uh, at the crucifixion. She's the only one who is there at the crucifixion and the resurrection too, right? Yes. So while it doesn't say, I mean, nearly as much of backstory as Katsunzaki does about her, it's all stuff that you could reasonably imagine. Mm -hmm. And none of it seems like a fan fiction at all. But... About their relationship, it's kind of the same as his dynamic with Judas in this book because they both love one another, Mm -hmm. different aspects of each other, and they they kind of hurt each each other back and forth throughout the book with different things they do. And she's another key element of developing Christ and making these uh, changes in him and getting him to accept um, or give up things he has to accept and give up by the time we get to the end and he's able to mount the cross. So she is, in in that way, she's another character that this whole, basically the salvation of the earth depended on. But it's she's coming from a much different place than Judas. Uh, like you said, they were childhood lovers. Well, not lovers. Childhood. They had a a crush on each other yeah. since they were kids in this book. And there's such a beautiful scene where um, they're like three or four years old. This is going to sound weird, but I thought it was really touching. And remember, they, they both took off their clothes and they laid down on the ground and their bare feet were uh, touching, touching yeah, each other's bare feet. feet. So from the beginning, they have this very strong and intimate connection. And um, as Jesus is getting older... And he's having more and more of these uh, literal attacks where, like, angels are Yeah, he has these talons. dreams of, yeah, birds basically clawing at his head and him yeah, his, being reminded constantly that he is the Messiah and needs to do something. Yeah, his body is literally a, a battleground for all these spiritual forces, and it, it literally— It'll, it gives him like seizures and physical pain, and he he drops down on the ground in front of everybody, and they don't know what's going on with him. So, anyways, as that's getting worse, when he's in his teen years, Mary, his mother, says, "Oh, this isn't good. Um, maybe if I take him to this town and find him uh, a girl, he'll be able to calm down, and uh, his life will get more on track." And the girl he sees, of course, is uh, Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. and He's he picks a rose, and this was another beautiful scene, and he's ready to go up to her and talk to her and, I guess, begin the process of them being man and wife. But God basically sends down even more angels and those talons, and they rip up his head, and he's on the ground having a seizure pretty much right in front of Magdalene. And because that... God is in between them and literally won't let them come together. Magdalene is so damaged by that that she ends up becoming a a prostitute. She says just so that to forget Jesus basically mm-hmm. so she can wash herself with the whole world and just f- try to get over the pain of not having him. But she ends up becoming <clears throat> maybe I'm reading into this too much but <clears throat> she ends up becoming not just like a spurned lover of Jesus, but the whole world in a way itself, because Katsunzaki makes a point of showing she's with guys outside her room, guys from India and Africa and Rome and Greece, and basically every country on the earth are in line waiting for her. They're on top of her. Um, it's like the whole world's filth, mm-hmm. basically, um, covering her and Christ or Jesus still loves her through all that. And I, I think that from Katsunzaki's was a metaphor for him being, um, you know, 
they say the earth is his bride. Right. And um, foreshadowing the relationship where, um, just like with what happens with Magdalene later, um, where he basically marries the world and makes it clean again. And uh, by the end, when Magdalene gets over all of this stuff and is able to put her her pain aside, she, she ends up... becomes one of his most loyal followers. Yeah, she becomes his most loyal follower, almost, and... You get that scene where she washes his feet with her hair with mm-hmm. a perfume and she completely changes like a, a total 180 and she even says like I'm a virgin again and he holds her in his arms and in a way they're happy. Yeah, I mean just through showing her all that love saved her so that is the love aspect of of Christ. But just, just just to wrap that part up, I'm sorry. So why that's important for Jesus's character in this book is she is and also represents everything that a normal man would have wanted and what he genuinely wanted in yeah. in a woman, a wife, in children. I mean, there's all this beautiful language about how he looks at her womb and he sees all the uh, basically the children waiting paralyzed inside there that's a creepy sounding word but like you know waiting to be unlocked yeah. and i mean that that is really the the primal want of every human is to find a mate find love and like it says in the bible like be fruitful and multiply and if he didn't if christ in this book didn't want and come face to face with all of that and didn't want it as badly as he did, then it wouldn't have meant anything when he has to give it up at the end of the book or every time he gives it up when Magdalene wants to kiss him, wants to run yeah. away with him, wants to hold him. So that that's what she does. She, she prepares him to give up being a human in every meaningful way. Christ never actually sins. In this book. No. You know, and that's that's another thing that I, I don't think a lot of people understand. These are all um, visions that happen. So what what ends up happening is, of course, Jesus tries both love. It, he tries love to tell the people to follow him, and it doesn't work. And everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go kill people. And they just start stoning each other to death. He's like, no, no, I want love is what I was trying to preach. So then he comes across John the Baptist who affirms that he is the Messiah and that this is who he's been preaching about this whole time. John is like the same energy as Judas in this yes, book. Yes, he tells him you have you can't just love. You have to take up an axe. You have to um, go out there and and spread this message. And Jesus and his disciples and followers end up trashing the temple, which Mind you, the temple was like the place of worship. This is like the most sacred place. And Jesus was explaining how this doesn't matter. None of this matters. Um, And he explains how he baptizes with fire. And, of course, all of this leads to him being uh, taken in to be crucified. And when he is on the cross, like you said before, he mentions the words, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus obviously cries and has this internal battle there he is given those last temptations of what a life could have been like if he hadn't done any of these things and given in to lust and and power and all of these worldly sins that every human would experience well it's not even that it's not like he's you know going headlong into lust and being with tons of women or that he's in the fantasy, he's a king. It's the opposite of that. He's like a, a humble, normal guy with a family. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, which inherently there's nothing wrong to want that. But, I mean, you know from the beginning the setup is he has to give up even the, the nice, good little things. The Yeah. the Even just uh, having a normal life, he, he can't have that if he's to be the savior. So... It just, it's such a powerful moment and it takes up, like you said, the last 
50 pages of the book. Yeah, and something interesting happens, um, which they pulled off very well in the movie, too, about the mm-hmm. flow during those chapters. Um, you kind of for it goes on so long that you kind of forget that it's actually just a vision and you it's so beautifully written too that you you kind of want to stay there yourself it gets creepy and yeah like you said the movie pulls it off very well everything's very uh odd and uncomfortable but also beautiful at the same time yeah very beautiful compared to the rest of the movie which is pretty rough but then you know of course i'm assuming whoever's listening and watching you're gonna go read this book or you've already read the book by the time you get to this part of our um (laughs) our talk here but he's visited by all of his disciples basically um saying you know you know what happened here but judas is the one who really breaks jesus out of this because yeah all the 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 disciples you get the sense that they're um kind of upset like they're apathetic but they're at the same time they're like well you know it makes sense you did the best you could you're just a guy and um jesus on his deathbed is he's kind of a little bit satisfied hearing that because it it validates his decision Mm -hmm. well in the fantasy and he's like okay phew you know because in the back of his mind he's he remembers you know oh maybe i was supposed to be the messiah and only judas in the fantasy comes in is like liar traitor deceiver and he's like come on judas he literally says, say a kind word to yeah, me. Yeah, he's like, can't you say something nice after all this time? And Judas basically explains that Jesus broke his heart and, you know, he made Judas betray him and it meant nothing. But that's why he always loved him more than the other followers is because he he pushed back against him. He challenged him. He was wild and he was honest. He always spoke his mind, even if it was rough. Right, and I but mean, but because he's doing that, even in the fantasy, that's the only thing that snaps him out of it and gets him to finish the job. It's like in our own lives, if we, you know, we're presented with this chaos, or um, you know, the material world, and you find no way of getting yourself into this balance of challenging yourself and bringing yourself back down to earth and getting in touch with your spiritual self or you know whatever it is in your life any sort of order in your life you can't just live on one end of the spectrum or the other there has to be some push and pull some kind of balance i don't know do you think there there does because a lot of people seem to get by living just in the material i mean it seems almost like that's how the world is designed to function yeah, no, it it seems that a lot of people if we're going, it's probably not going to last very long is what I'm going to say here. And this book certainly equates with living that way, like just a material normal man way. It equates that with literally avoiding horrible physical <laughs> damage and suffering. Yeah, and, just being comfortable for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's But you can't you can't do that. Why not? Because it's going to come to a point where you have to go, like the Hobbit, you're going to have to go and slay that dragon. Oh, we're at the hero's journey again. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, ultimately, th- this is that like the ultimate hero's journey. dragon's not going away. Journey. Because you're staying safe and you think that, you know, I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm, you know, a humble farmer and I don't do anything wrong ever. You know, whether you believe in it or not, there's always going to be some something in the end, whether that's a god or something else. I don't know. I won't get into that. Well, I think it's what you're talking about is definitely real. It's that that um, I guess what Kierkegaard would call anxiety. It's just that. You're, you're comfortable, but you're upset at the same time because on some level you know you can be more and can be better and uh, do more for the world, but you, you haven't um, struggled enough to find what that is or how to do it yet. And that's what makes, whether he was, whether he like did everything 
the Bible says he did or not, that struggle is what makes Jesus a real character or like more real than real, actually. I don't want to be sacrilegious, but like real like Mickey Mouse almost. I'm not being ironic or cute when I say that, but think about it. Like Mickey Mouse has probably affected and changed the world more than, you know, you and me put together uh, because he mirrors something that I guess people want. But in Christ is the same way, just to a, a much deeper degree. He He is a reflection of basically the conflict that defines all of us, that struggle between being comfortable with what we have and accepting that or trying to ascend to more or I don't know what you want to call it. The, the spirit in the flesh. like Spirit in the flesh, the said. domestic versus the monastic, the material versus spiritual. And that's what resonated with me so strongly in this book. It's a powerful book. Whether you are a Christian, you have never experienced any sort of uh, Christianity, like reading a Bible, you know, hey, if if you you need some kind of understanding of historical references to go into this book, it might make a little bit more sense. But I mean, I think anybody from any background could read a book like this and come out of it thinking a little bit differently. And I think it's very worth the read. This is in my top books of all time. And I say go see the movie as well. The movie adaptation was actually amazing for what Scorsese had to deal with. Um, I mean, it's it's beautiful. You should read a little bit about how that movie was made. It's very interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, this book is very special. And I'm sure, you know, people who are Christian or people who call themselves a Catholic or Greek Orthodox will never pick up a book like this. But I think a book like this will just strengthen your own faith. Well, that that would be a great shame um, because I agree with you. I think that it it's not I, I can't compare it with the Bible itself because, I mean, that would be sacrilege. But I think it's like one of those books like the Inferno or Dante's writing where it's not holy scripture, but it really does complement all of that and add more to it, at least in my case. So just so people, maybe they're, they believe in all this stuff, but they're not willing to look at books like this, so they don't miss out on that. What, what would you say to them to, I don't know, maybe argue that it isn't really sacrilegious? Yeah, why a book like this is not blasphemous in my opinion. I mean, I think why I would say this is not a sacrilegious book is because he doesn't actually give in to the sin. He doesn't actually, you know, marry Mary Magdalene. He doesn't actually give in to all of these worldly desires that every human would want. He still is perfect. He is Christ. He the book ends with him saying it is accomplished. You know, he he never did give in to any of these sins. He he, he triumphs strong. over all so in the story. It's it's not a book that yes, it brings up these these battles that he has and it, you know, gives a lot of detail like any human has in a split second in their mind. So I, I think that is the beauty of this book, like actually really exploring all of these temptations that Jesus was tempted with and it actually happened. It just spent a little more time with that to really express the humanity. So I think he was too human for people in this book. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there's just this knee jerk reaction, just having him just in the same room as something bad. Even if, no matter how he reacts to it, I mean, because if you, like you said, if you actually read it, he gets face to face with everything in this ugly stuff, bad stuff, not bad stuff, but just stuff that he isn't supposed to do. He's right up against it and he, he pop, he triumphs over it every time. Yeah. So he's really, he's the same Jesus that you're expecting him to be 
even if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you just have to be able to deal with him in the same environment as you are. But that's the point, because he's a, a human. He went. He goes through the same stuff as you and me. If he's supposed to be human in every sense of the word and feel pain and feel all of these things, then he is also Christ and a holy, holy man. So, you know, again, I, I think if, if you're thinking going into something like this, it's going to be blasphemous and it'll be a sin to read, you are completely wrong. Yeah, and without that ingredient, he's just a robot, like— Almost like how it was when I was brought up in church as a kid. Like, go through the motions. Yeah, like and... the the Jesus from <laughs> from that or from my earlier churches. It would be you know Magdalene would come up to him, uh, maybe naked, saying like I love you, I've always loved you, I want to marry you and have beautiful children, and he would just say no, that's bad, no thanks, and he wouldn't <laughs> care at all and turn around. But because he wanted that. That that was the moment it clicked for me. Like, he's a human. Like, he really... And not only was he a human, but he... There is... It's possible to feel these sort of things and overcome them for good, no matter what kind of temptation it is. Well, Katsuzaki's definitely had quite the imagination to even come up with all of this stuff. I mean, it really is insane that he was able to to write a book like this but um just just to end it here again pick up this book if you haven't already it's written in a very different way than what you're used to you have to take it like you're actually reading a a play um and i think you're going to learn a lot from this type of writing it's definitely going to be out of your comfort zone um but it is definitely one of the top books ever written in my in my opinion but thank you so much for watching if you're new here make sure you subscribe and like and comment down below your thoughts have you read a book like this or have you read this book and if you have tell us what you thought of it um we'd love to have that conversation with you and remember if a book is banned it's worth reading Thank you.